You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Wednesday, August 19, 2020, just after market close in London. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Real Vision Creative Studios' Roger Hurst. But first, Peter Cooper with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Yesterday, the S&P hit a record-breaking closing high of 3,389.78. At least for now, this new high is held up, trading slightly above yesterday's close at time of recording. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the S&P is up 52% from its lows. The index's swift and momentous move upward has largely been driven by big tech. Today, Apple has reached the $2 trillion market cap threshold, making it the first U.S. company to reach a $2 trillion valuation. Apple is up roughly 0.7% on the day and has been up 20.89% since its latest earnings report was released on July 30th. At this level, Apple's valuation alone is almost as much as the total market cap of the Russell 2000. During the course of the pandemic, FANG stocks have quickly become the heavyweights in terms of the overall S&P 500 market cap, hovering around 20%, up more than 5% from its January level close to 14%. Also today, big box retailer Target announced its Q2 earnings, reporting its largest quarterly sales increase in its 58 years of operations. Target CEO Brian Cornell reported a 24% year-on-year rise in like-for-like sales. Its stock is up 12% on the day at the time of recording. This increase in sales can be linked to a strong consumer demand the company reported across all categories. Electronic sales have increased by more than 70%, home goods like kitchenware by 30%, and food, beverage, and other essentials by 20%. In the past three months ending August 1st, Target has raked in $23 billion in revenue which is $4.5 billion more than the same period last year. And net income rose from $938 million to $1.69 billion. With the varied product selection typical of big box retailers, its status as essential businesses during the national lockdown, and a strong e-commerce presence, Target has a leg up over other struggling retailers. Target has even outshined Walmart's performance, with its comparable sales in the U.S. rising only 9.3%. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, Roger. Hi, Ash. How's it going? It's going great. It's great to see you back. Fabulous to be here. You've been uh, on holiday for the last few weeks? Yeah, I've been a combination of things. I was away for a couple of weeks, got down to the south of France, got back before the uh, quarantine kicked in again in the UK. And prior to that, I was uh, involved in a, a, a documentary that we we're making for Refinitive. So I was out of action for about four weeks. Yeah, I don't mean to brag, but I recently got to the south of Midtown East. Yeah, I got, got some, I was probably as warm, if not warmer than where I was, though, by the sounds of it. It's been sweltering. So, Roger, let's dive right in. I know one of the things that you're watching very closely is the dollar. You've been all over currencies. You refer to the dollar as the apex predator uh, of markets. Tell us, where are you right now? 
Yeah, so the, the dollar obviously is, you know, I, it's not an asset, but I always call it the alpha asset. And if you can get the dollar right, you'll probably get your portfolio right. I mean, more so for international investors, but it impacts um, even US dollar-based investors as well. And, and in some ways, what it really matters here is, is not just the direction of the dollar, but the speed of the dollar's move. Now, generally, people will say if the dollar's going up, it's tightening financial conditions. It's a bit like uh, a rate hike. And if the dollar's going down, it loosens financial conditions. So generally, a dollar going up is good. Sorry, a dollar going up is bad. And a dollar going down is good for overall risk assets. But generally, it means what matters more is the speed of it. If it's a fast move, particularly if it's a fast move to the upside, that can be really bad for global risk assets. Because so it creates, it creates pressure from dollar funding markets overseas, yeah. especially in emerging markets. Yeah, you know, if you've got if you owe dollars and the dollar's going up, it means that it's going to cost you more effectively of your own currency to get those dollars to pay back your debt. And there are other issues as well, but I mean, it's it's I mean, the whole dollar system is dependent on that. And obviously, if everything is dependent on dollars and the cost of the dollar goes up, it may, puts a strain on the system. Is a simple way of thinking about it. Right. So. Over the last few weeks, we've seen quite a big move in the dollar to the downside. And that move in the dollar has been actually quite rapid. And it's probably been underpinning a number of things such as you know, global equities, particularly um, some of the US equities have done quite well out of it. Um, but more importantly, commodity prices and some of the inflation stories have been on the back of this weakening dollar. Gold has obviously moved, silver's moved. They've been given a real um, boost um, by that move in the dollar. And there's been almost this sort of level of, uh, I always call it a little bit of hysteria because having been away for two weeks, I didn't look at anything and came back and saw lots of people saying, that's it, the dollar's over, the dollar's going down. And I looked at this a little bit more closely and the dollar is weaker when you look at the DXY and this is everybody's favorite index. The DXY is a major dollar index, um, but the DXY is 58% Euro. Another 20% of that is the other European currencies and the balance is the yen and the Canadian dollar. And, and that, you know, as you pointed out earlier, Roger, those European currencies also follow the euro in terms of directionality. Absolutely, yeah. So if you get a move, and this is kind of where, where we're going to, is if you get a move in, in the euro, you'll get a move in those other currencies. Now, what we can see in this, and if we look at, at this chart, we can see that the DXY has had a very dramatic move, particularly over the last month and a half, two months. But when you compare that to the JP Morgan Emerging Market FX Index, which I've inverted on this chart, you can see that most of the last two years, they've been in lockstep. And then we've seen this divergence, and it's a very dramatic divergence over the last um, two months. And if the dollar is weak, you'd expect it to be weak against everything. And the question we've got to ask is, is this true dollar weakness or is this euro strength? And what's actually transpired is that a lot of this euro strength from 112 to 120, so this last leg, has occurred since mid-July. And in mid-July, you basically had the confirmation and the agreement of that $750 billion bailout package, plus confirmation of the 1.1 trillion or 1.7 trillion five-year budget for Europe. So Europe got rewarded for coming together and doing a bigger package than most people had expected maybe a few months ago. And when you normally get more fiscal, you expect the currency to fall, but that unity allowed the euro to rise. So this is what we're really seeing over the last couple of months is euro strength dragging up sterling, Swedish krona, Norwegian krona, Swiss franc. Other currencies, even things like the yen and the Aussie dollar, whilst they've moved, they've not moved quite so dramatically. So I think the way to look at this at this moment, I'm not saying this won't lead to more broad, broad widespread dollar weakness, but at the moment, this is more euro strength than right. dollar weakness. And that might have a profound 
implication for how people are thinking of positioning themselves at the moment. Roger, what I think is so interesting about this argument is that you're kind of you're going three layers down, right? So the surface argument that we've been hearing about, if you're just following uh, at a very cursory level, is obviously U.S. equity prices. Beneath that, the tier beneath that, if you're reading Bloomberg, for example, you'll see all of these stories exactly as you pointed out, talking about how the dollar uh, weakness story is what's really driving markets, or that's the main force that we really need to think about when we look forward. And your counter narrative, the third level down, so to speak, is that no, in fact, this isn't true dollar weakness we're seeing. If we saw dollar weakness, we'd see it reflected, especially in emerging market currencies. In fact, what we're seeing here is European strength. You're seeing euro strength based on some of the policy actions coming out of the ECB moving toward debt mutualization. This is a really interesting narrative. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some other elements which I'll bring in here. And, and I did an interview with Julian Brigden, um, which goes on our um, YouTube platform with Refinitiv today, where he talks about the bearish arguments. And he's got some very, very powerful structural bearish arguments, which I'll come into a couple of those. But I think, you know, when we look at other periods of dollar strength um, and dollar weakness, when we saw dollar strength um, in the, um, this was in 2014, we saw dollar strength across the board with all currencies. It wasn't just versus the euro, whereas today it's really just the euro and a couple of others. Now, there are some other big levels in play as well. And the other one to watch out for is, is dollar yen, 105. It's a big level that's held for the last few years. The reason why these matter is that, and why it particularly matters for our thinking around the, the dollar is that, firstly, when the dollar started to strengthen a couple of years ago, it started off in all the basket case, currency, basket case currencies that had, for instance, external deficits, places like Turkey, um, Argentina, we all know about. And then it moved slowly through some commodity currencies, eventually came into the sort of broader market, but it started off in emerging markets. Well, as we speak, and people say, well, it's an idiosyncratic story, but Turkey, the Turkish lira, has been making new lows versus the dollar, dollar making new highs. So some of these currencies are still actually weakening versus the dollar. Some of the ones that started this whole move off um, a couple of years ago. So the first element is that. And then the second element is that everybody wants to hit their inflation target. And the problem is if the euro is going up and the yen is going up, how the hell does Europe hit its inflation target, this 2% level that it's always wanted? it becomes a point where some of these other central banks will start to squeal. And for Draghi, it used to always be around 120, 125. And what you can see, and this is another chart I've got here, is that this last leg of the move higher in the euro and down in the dollar has seen a significant leg of relative weakness in European equities versus the S&P. So the S&P has moved back to near its all-time all highs versus the Eurostox 50. This is just the basic ratio. It's not currency adjusted. But the point here is that as you start to see some significant moves um, in these currencies to the upside, it makes it all the harder for Europe and Japan to hit their own targets. So aren't they going to come out with maybe more of their own policy to try and weaken their currencies again as a self-regulating mechanism? We don't know yet, but certainly that's a risk that could come about. So we need to see the size of these other bazookas as well and not yeah. just focus on the DXY on its own. Yeah, the risk of competitive devaluation is a really interesting one. And just to call back to what you mentioned earlier, if you look at a long-term chart, you look at a five-year chart of dollar-yen, uh, you see it rolling down from about 120 to around 105 where we are today over a five-year time horizon. Of course, dollar-yen uh, declining represents dollar-strength, yen weakness. That's right. And you've seen that you know, 105, they keep on, you know, it keeps on bouncing off that level. And I think the real line in the sand is probably the, the big round 100 level. I think we had a spike low um, a few years ago to there. But it's these are sorts of levels where, you know, Arbonomics has kind of kicked back into like, oh, God, we've got to do more. We've got to make sure we hit our inflation target. And, and it comes through kind of it, the big question here is, is what we're seeing in the U.S. 
inflationary or reflationary. If it's inflationary for the US, but it's deflationary for Europe and Japan without being reflationary for the global economy, then that will probably elicit a response from Europe and from Japan to try and weaken their own currencies. So the point here is that with this, you know, this view that it's the end of the dollar, yes, we may have seen a peak, but it is the dollar versus the euro and other European currencies primarily. And secondarily, it's, it's other currencies like Canadian dollar and Aussie dollar. Aussie dollar has only moved two cents from 70 to 72 in this big move that we've seen in the euro. This is really a European story, not a dollar story. It's transpiring, but it's leading everyone to believe that this is definitely an inflationary breakout. But what if, and it's a what if, the ECB Act and the Bank of Japan Act, or it was just we priced in a premium into the euro for that um, collaboration on, on the package, it's going to run out of steam fairly soon. Then if the dollar starts to rally, then some of these inflation stories could actually see some profit taking and a, a sharp move back. Roger, since you follow this so closely, can you add a little bit of color around what that package is and not just the package itself, but what it represents more broadly to Europeans? This has been a struggle that's gone on some 70 years in Europe uh, from the Second World War to create greater unity uh, between those European economies. And it really is a significant change moving toward debt mutualization, especially. It is. It's a significant change because you know, Europe is a basket case and continues to be a basket case. And sitting here in Europe, um, you know, uh, in the UK, which is actually more of a basket case at the moment, it's difficult to see how it's going to change fundamentally from what transpired um, a couple of months ago. But it is that first step. Now, the size of the package is small relative to the overall needs of Europe, but it was a first step towards more, um, I don't want to say debt mutualization because that's a massive step, but it's towards yeah. more coherence, more unity, right. uh, more agreements. And it was at the EU level, not the euro level. So it was across the, the widest um, membership base that you could have. What's really interesting here is that, you know, you get this scenario where if you see the US do more fiscal, that will weaken the dollar. But we've been repaying Europe for doing more fiscal. Now, I don't see Europe getting more fiscal out of the door anytime soon because Germany and the fiscal fives, it turned out, kicking and screaming into this. So if Europe and Europe, Euro strength is rewarded by more fiscal and more unity, but that's now it, maybe that limits the amount of Euro strength that you can get because actually there's not much more they can do. And maybe actually more from the US will actually be, well, hang on a minute, maybe, maybe the US still looks attractive. But the big argument kind of within all of this is that what we've seen is a convergence of yields. And this is one of, of, of um, Julian's big arguments, and it's a fair argument, which is we saw yields widen out dramatically after 2014 when Europe went into QE. We saw what was called the Euro glut. About 400 billion a year left Europe. This was George Saravellas, head of FX, who I used to work with at Deutsche Bank, coined this Euro glut, money leaving Europe to find better yields elsewhere, particularly the US. And people said, oh, but you know, when there's 300 basis point difference and it started coming down, shouldn't that have meant the Euro strengthened? probably above 150 basis point difference on 10-year yields, so US yields versus European yields. Anything above there didn't really matter. It was just a nice, big, juicy yield, maybe above 200 points. But as you come down to closer to 100, maybe people are not going to put their money into US assets, US debt, because the uptick is just not big enough. So that convergence of yields where, where the US is catching down to the rest of the world, that may be one of the primary drivers for the euro story, but it's not a dollar story because these other currencies are not moving in the same way. Yeah. You know, what strikes me just hearing you talk about this, Roger, is the level of, of granularity that you approach this with is something that's much greater than the depth that we see uh, here in U.S. media. And it's an important point to point out that that could be some of the, the bias that we see in not understanding that this is truly, in fact, a euro story. I should add, as you pointed out, debt mutualization uh, relative to the COVID package 
very limited, certainly by no means full fiscal uh, you know, unity throughout Europe. It's interesting, though, I have to wonder, talk, you talked about the directionality. Is this a gateway drug to, uh, for example, uh, bank debt mutualization? Yes. I mean, for Europe, I mean, this, this has always been the game, isn't it, is that the, what I think Europe is trying to do ultimately is it's trying to kick the can for as long as it can until we get a broader agreement at the supranational level that allows some form of, of effectively um, transfer of risk from certain parts of the European banking system to others. The problem is that some of the banking system within the so-called um, Frugal 5, Frugal 6, if you include Germany, are equally stretched. You know, my own, own place, Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank, these are not banks which are sitting on very, very strong balance sheets. So nowhere really in Europe, and even in the UK, you can see this, and overall globally, all banks are struggling with these flat yield curves. Yes, yield curves are starting to edge higher, but then you get the problem that we saw at the end of 2018, is if you have 10-year yields get to too high a level, in 2018, it's 3.25% on the 10-year. It's going to be a lot lower than that today to cause um, an undermining of the equity market, which is probably why you'll get some form of yield curve control, i.e. central banks will buy bonds to keep yields down, even if inflation is starting to tick higher. So there will be that element to it. But certainly, I think, you know, there is this hope that, you know, there will be some form of transfer within Europe. But I think that's so far in the future. It takes a real crisis. The less crisis there is in Europe, the less they do. You need a proper crisis to kick in again. So this needs to worsen before they'll act further. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting what you pointed out about the Frugal Four. Uh, being having weak balance sheets on their banks as well, because it's sort of an interesting counter narrative that doesn't just look like a stark divide between the club med countries in the south, so-called, and the northern frugal countries. There really is some uh, systemic weakness that may need to be patched. And if that's the case, perhaps the politics changes. That's one of the things that people have argued about Germany is that Germany's um, situation has been very, um, very static, very consistent, but breaking a little bit through the COVID crisis, because obviously there were you know, it was, a, it was a potential existential crisis for Europe and the Eurozone if it had got out of hand. But I think that if, and, and I think what a lot of these sort of southern countries would hope for is that if and when there is the pain in the northern countries and their banks and their balance sheets disintegrate to the sort of level where it requires a sort of government intervention that they've said none of the other countries can do, then suddenly that opens the floodgates. But we're not there yet. And as I say, if, if this world of, you know, flatlining where We've got through the worst of the, the, the extreme risk, and it's now kind of death by a thousand cuts as we see solvencies pick up. This could be a very, very slow burning story that takes a long time to play out. Look at Japan. I know Japan was an island in a world that was doing quite well until a few years ago, right. but Japan has been playing out over decades and it's not getting better. The banking system's actually now kind of, you know, its, it's daily running costs are now worse than its income for the first time in that 30 year period, but um, it's not getting better, but it's taken a long time to get here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, Roger, this brings up naturally the other story that we've been following here. And I'm curious, when you look at U.S. equity markets uh, within the broader context of your European view, thinking about currencies, what do you see, what are you looking at, and what's your view? Well, it's the, the currency impact on the European equities is clear at the moment. So if the euro continues to rally, then the U.S. will continue to outperform. 
and that ratio between the S&P and the um, euro stocks will make a new all-time high in that scenario. So if you got to 122, 123 on the euro. Um, in terms of the US, I think the concentration will continue because it's a momentum trade. And the thing that we all do, I do um, erroneously now, and we all do, is that I kind of flip between, I know this is a flow story, not a fundamental story, but I start talking about PEs, but PEs are irrelevant in a flow story, which is driven by central bank liquidity, um, rules-based um, funds and, and those inflows, and ultimately the return of buybacks, particularly from the tech sector. But you know, what has the money followed? The money has followed the buybacks again, because the buybacks are heavily concentrated into 10 stocks in the tech sector. That's not going to change anytime soon, um, unless we've got yields breaking out. But I don't think yields will break out, because I think we'll have yield curve control, and inflation on its own breaking out is not going to impact that. So I can see this concentration continuing, and I think there's Goldman Sachs uh, Julian Brigden may, may quoted a Goldman Sachs stat, which was, I think, that if the top six stocks in the S&P fell 10%, then every other, the, the bottom 100 need to rally 90% to mean that the S&P goes nowhere, which again shows you this concentration, which is, I think, 27% in those top five or six names now. Um, it's a story which will run, um, I think it will continue to run for a while um, because money and the momentum is chasing it. And what's going to be the catalyst to turn it around? Well, it's either going to be... Election may be unlikely. Maybe it's going to be too much retail money squeezed into that space so that when eventually there is a catalyst, that has the emotive reaction to the downside. But overall, I mean, the story for them is still compelling. It's just one that's getting out of hand based on historical metrics. But we're in a period where the drivers of the market are very, very different. And if things start to wobble and the Fed commits to another $3 trillion, Surely that means that the equity market goes higher again. Which remember that you know in one of the very first episodes of this, I said, look, the, the framework. This is not a forecast, but the framework is a recession and S and P at four thousand. Not my view, but that's the framework we're in when we're driven by liquidity, not fundamentals. So how does that modify what you've seen? And it's it's good to have, to have this conversation because you've been away for a few weeks. How does this change your broader framework when you look at the events that have happened since you've returned? I think the biggest thing that's going to have to come is that. You know, we're all talking about the end of furlough, and the end of furlough will be catastrophic for employment. And there's all the talk in the UK, as there is in the US, at what level of trying to push this forward. And you know, the danger is that we eventually get caught in this whole trap, which is how do you ever get out of that? Are you in infinite QE? Are you in infinite fiscal? Will the two come together? And then ultimately, are we in the story of, of true inflation? Now, the inflation people are seeing today, gold prices, silver prices are in anticipation of weakening, you know, eroding of currencies and the value of all currencies out there. Right. Um, but there's also been that euro dollar story that's given that last leg up. So you know, that story is still there, that, that inflation story is there. But I don't think we're at that structural inflation story yet, because I think it's going to have to happen next year beyond the election. Right. I think what we're seeing here in terms of inflation is that, um, if you recall, we had income went up massively, personal income in the US, whilst consumption collapsed and savings went through the roof. Now you've had some form of, of breaking down the lockdown, so coming out of it. Yeah. Savings are being spent. There's been pent-up demand in the housing market. I'm experiencing it myself. I'm trying to buy a house, I'm getting bid out of the market almost everywhere I look. Um, and so you're seeing this uptick in inflation because of that pent-up demand. But I don't think it's structural yet. I don't think this is the true fiscal story that people see potentially on the horizon. This is a base effect and it's a pent-up demand effect. And we've seen it in countries where their currencies have gone up and they've gone down. It tells me it's not that fiscal currency story. It's just what, what does every currency come out of? It's come out of lockdown. 
with people itching to spend and they're probably spending, but there are some supply bottlenecks yeah. as well, which is creating this, this very, um, uh, this is creating this, this system which, you know, we're seeing those inflation prices come through. But this is not that true fiscal story of fiscal expenditure and monetary, that, that is the central bank's printing money to create a huge leg higher in inflation. I think that's somewhere 12 months ahead. Yeah, this could be mismatches in supply and demand, structural changes caused by COVID, uh, shifting preferences and consumption, all, all manner of things that are really difficult to weed out from the more structural issue of whether or not we have true, uh, you know, cost push, demand pull inflation. Yeah, and look, you know, the inflation I think will, if central banks, sorry, if governments continue to roll furlough schemes at their current levels in this ad infinitum way, which will destroy future growth even further and therefore mean we need to do more of it, then yes, we could have inflation coming through sooner rather than later because in, in that point, you'll be um, helping demand stay strong whilst not doing anything with supply. In China, it's the opposite. In China, what you can see is they've, they've stimulated supply, but demand is staying at home. You know, the Chinese are good savers. They're not going out as much um, as maybe the, the government had wanted. So you've got the opposite there, which you've got lots of product, but not a vast amount of demand. Whereas in, in the US and in Europe and places like that, you've got these supply bottlenecks often because we're not getting the stuff from China. Um, but you're still stimulating demand with paychecks, with furloughed paychecks. So that, I think, is the inflation we're seeing here. And it's something, again, I mentioned very early on back in March and April, that the supply chain bottlenecks will create some forms of inflation. But I don't think this is the true uh, hyper-style inflation that people think of from excess fiscals with the monetary combined. Yet, you know, nonetheless, Tony Greer yesterday, I know you watched that RVDB, talking a lot about the inflation trade, looking at things like Bitcoin, looking at gold, looking at tech stocks, looking at housing prices. So how do you play this or how do you think about it from a framework perspective uh, with regard to the shift or the mismatch between whether it's a structural issue or just a supply and demand mismatch up front caused by COVID issues? Well, I think the thing that Tony said, which is absolutely right, is you've got to be glued to your screens. Mm -hmm. Because you know, this is the market where volatility, you know, VIX is currently 20. I know that's implied, but let's say realized volatility. Let's pretend realized volatility is 20. It could go to 40 in two days or even in a day um, right. on the S&P. So you've got, to, you've got to be able to trade it. And that's the thing is that we don't know whether this is um, bottlenecks or structural. There has been a vast fiscal response, but that fiscal response, has it stimulated demand over and above where it was? Or has it taken demand back to where it was? And I think it's probably taken it back to roughly where it was, but with supply chain um, kind of breakdowns uh, you know, in, in that process. Yeah. What I look for is, you know, that JP Morgan Emerging Market Currency Index. If emerging market currencies do start to properly strengthen, then we're in not just inflation, but reflation, which is pretty good. And this comes to a thing called the dollar smile. The dollar smile is the dollar strong in times of crisis, the dollar strong in times of idiosyncratic US centric stories. But in true times of global reflation, the dollar's on the back foot, because other currencies are higher beta. So you know, if you had global growth, true global growth, not inflation, but reflation, then you would expect the Korean one to outperform. You'd expect the, um, you'd expect the South African rand to outperform. You'd expect the Mexican peso to outperform. But the Mexican peso, which is you know, the US's biggest trade partner, that currency is still way off where it was pre-March and nowhere near where it was at the beginning of the year. So these emerging market currencies have not done it yet. All they've done is they've pulled back from the excess move of the dollar in March but they haven't re regained their poise from the beginning of the year. So watch these emerging market currencies. If they start to really catch a bid versus the dollar, then we keep with it. We keep with the reflation or the inflation trade rather than reflation trade. We keep the gold, we keep the silver and all those sorts of trades. But if they don't, 
my guess is that we'll actually start to see the euro reverse. And one of the other things on the euro is that the CFTC speculative positioning, non-commercial positions and futures, is at a record long. The shorts on the dollar on the CFTC are the lowest they've been, sorry, the biggest shorts they've been since 2011. Mm. When you look at the chart, I've got a chart here which shows you know, when we've seen spikes this high. And you know, positioning does not create performance. It's like margin on the S&P. Margin is high because the S&P is high. One doesn't lead the other. They're coincidental. Same with performance occurrences and positioning. But when positioning from these levels, often lower, turns on the euro. We've seen it a few times over the last 20 years. The euro's come back 10 to 20%. So we've got to be aware that this may be a euro story that could turn if we priced in Europe being more unified, but then we start to see the ECB getting a little bit nervous that the euro is too strong. So that's the risk that we have. We've got to watch those two elements. Is the euro going to have another leg, but are we going to see the catch up from emerging markets that confirms global reflation rather than just euro strength? Finally, Roger, talking about idiosyncratic performance of US assets, when we look at tech stocks, when we look at the S&P, big picture, and you think about where the U.S. economy is, the real U.S. economy, it does seem very clear that there's a disconnect here, right? I mean, it's hard to feel good or comfortable with the idea of the S&P 500 at all-time highs, while simultaneously we know that there are so many people unemployed, businesses are closing down, uh, you know, people are about to begin getting evicted as protections roll off. There are all of these issues in the U.S. economy. Very clearly, we are not where we were uh, in, uh, in February. It's just hard to understand, I think, maybe uh, for the ordinary investor, for the average man or woman walking down the street, how long can this possibly go on? To what extent is this being driven by fiscal policy? To what extent is it being driven by monetary policy? And should we feel uneasy about it? Yes, you should. we should feel, I don't want to say uneasy about it, you should feel cautious about it, but also you know, make hay whilst the sun shines, which is if there's a trend and there's momentum and it continues and you believe the Fed's going to basically say, you know, the Fed put is, we can't take much of a wobble. We want to suppress volatility. As Tony said, you go with it because I'm sure that they will do yield curve control if yields start to move too much if inflation picks up, which is why great for gold. Inflation up, but yields down, real yields down, great for gold. But I think the risk here is that you know, we don't know what, what is the sensitivity of the Fed to doing much, much more pre-election and post-election. So that, that's the element to it. But ultimately, you know, as I've said many, many times, the S&P is not the U.S. equity market. Uh, the U.S. equity market, sorry, the, the S&P is not the U.S. economy, and it's certainly not the global market. And in fact, the S&P really today is only five or six stocks, which are really creating the performance. And right. they're being driven by a completely different mindset. They're being driven by momentum, volatility, buybacks, um, 401k inflows, nothing to do with fundamentals. But shock horror in some ways is that the S&P has been divorced from its own earnings and profits for the last five years. They've been flatlining since 2015 with one small bump up, whilst the S&P has been going parabolic. So what we see now is very viscerally, and you know, we all can see it now, that the fund the flows have trumped the fundamentals. But right. that's actually been happening for five years. I was writing about this in 2016 at Deutsche Bank. I wrote something about this as my entry piece into Real Vision in 2017. This has been going on a long time. It's just become absolutely supercharged in the last six months and during the COVID crisis. Yeah, very well said. COVID, once again, is an accelerant of existing trends. It puts them on steroids. And, you know, Roger, to your point, if you have the stomach to trade these markets, the reason you, as as you said, go with it is because if you don't, you get smashed. Yeah, I mean, 
Look, it's you, you can say, say they're sort of saying morally I disagree with it, and you know morally I do because yeah because it's my kids. It's our kids will pay for this. This is future growth that's being brought forward again, or, or future asset prices which are now being pumped up today. So our kids will pay for it. So I could disagree with it morally, but at the same time, if you want to make money, you make money. And you know there are some morals you might not want to put aside, but the sort of morality of the central bank and fiscal versus the equity market is not what I'm going to lose sleep about. If if the momentum's there and you can play it and your trading is and you're in front of your screen, you do it because you want to make money. So why not? Roger, I can't possibly improve upon that. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.